This is uh, Steve Coleman and Joanne Hagmeyer, part of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel, and we're going to talk about Mark 13. So I want just to think about today's passage. I want you to try and get into the feeling of the iconic buildings in our nation. So just think about buildings that represent America. And I'll start us off with the White House. All right, think of another building that represents America. Statue of Liberty, totally does. Yes, Washington Monument. Empire State Building. Are there a couple of more that are iconic? Pardon me? Like America. Golden Gate Bridge. What about the Pentagon? What about the National Capitol? I mean, you can't even walk around in the D.C. Mall without seeing another iconic building that represents America. And think about the feelings that that evokes, feelings of kind of patriotism maybe or, or um, maybe love for the country. Not everybody loves their country deeply, but when you see a memorial or something like that, it evokes something. So I want you to have that feeling because I want you to think about what the disciples thought when they saw their temple. Their temple above everything else represented Israel. And I want you to think about everything that that temple evoked. It was Mount Zion, the patriarchs, the, the exodus, spiritual legacy. Like our buildings don't have so much spiritual legacy, but the temple did. In fact, there was a whole theology around the temple, the Levitical priesthood, Ezra and Nehemiah and the scribes that they established. And so the disciples would have had a great respect, even a reverence for their temple and for the religious leaders who were literally holy men of God who went into the holy house of God where God was seen to have literally lived. But last week in the middle of the Passover, this massive, gorgeous temple was filled with worshipers and all this pious activity, and Jesus delivered that really jarring judgment against the religious rulers and against the empty religiosity that was happening in the temple. And that's where chapter 13 opens up this morning. Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple for the very last time. They're climbing Mount Olive, or the Mount of Olives, and they're on their way to Lazarus, Mary, and Martha's house in Bethany. And some of the disciples turn around to admire the temple and have one last look. And it must have been gorgeous in the setting sun, the gold dazzling. And they turned around and said, look, Jesus, isn't that beautiful? And Jesus was like, eh, forget it. Now, the disciples must have been really startled. And they must have really kept thinking about what Jesus had said because when they stopped to rest, they wanted to talk to Jesus about it. Now, we're going to go over this chapter twice. This week, we're going to look at it from a first century point of view, the disciples' point of view. Next week, we're going to look at it from a 21st century point of view. What's it mean to us? So here's where we're going to go. We're going to talk about those questions that the disciples wanted to ask Jesus. Then Jesus gives a whole slew of predictions. We're going to find out some of that straight out of their scriptures. And then we're going to look at some practical applications. Over to you, Steve. Thank you. Uh, let's start right in and read the introduction. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark 13. As Joanne said, they have come out of the temple. We've had a number of weeks where we've talked about uh, the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees testing Jesus. The most recent uh, action was he was observing 
If you remember the widow that had those two small copper coins, she was giving us an offering, and he had some uh, conversation with his disciples about that. But we pick up here in chapter 13, Mark 13. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign that these things are about to be accomplished? Well, this same event is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew and Luke talk about all the disciples admiring the building and its adornments. Here Mark records that one disciple who voices the awe that they all felt at the size and the grandeur of the temple. Doesn't identify which disciple that is. Well, we got from Joanne last week some idea of the gold and gold plating that were on display in the temple. How overpowering that forest of columns were. The temple building itself was immense. It dwarfed everything else around it. Its construction was with huge limestone blocks, hundreds of tons each, that were so carefully cut that the joints fit together almost seamlessly. It caught the attention of the disciples. Jesus says, in essence, if you're impressed, don't be. These will all be knocked over and scattered. Wow, what a shocking statement. All of this torn down, everything completely dismantled. The impact of Jesus' words were enough to cause these several disciples to come find him on the Mount of Olives and ask this question, the heads up that they want, wanted for the signs and for what they should be looking for, for this event. We have to give credit to these guys. You know, on, all, through all the Gospels, and Mark included, the disciples have had a hard time receiving and accepting some of the harder statements of Jesus. He talks several times about his going to Jerusalem, his death, burial, and resurrection, and that when it, they just struggled to get their head around the reality of that. Uh, not so this time. Several of them took this remark about the temp temple to heart and came to talk to Jesus. As Joanne indicated, uh, our focus is how the disciples themselves heard this and what they thought, not about the readers of Mark's gospel, what they thought. That's us. Okay, it's interesting that Mark names Peter, James, John, and Andrew. There are no names in the other accounts, in the other gospels. Why would Mark single out Peter, James, John, and Andrew? I don't know for sure. It's certainly true. Peter, James, and John were not shy about speaking up, stepping forward, and Jesus did have them as what looked like some kind of an inner circle. They were the ones he took up onto the Mount of Transfiguration, you'll remember. The addition that's interesting is Andrew. Now, Andrew is Peter's brother. So you have the brothers James and John, the brothers Peter and Andrew. Maybe he just came because of family ties. But let me suggest something else to you. In Mark chapter 1, we read that Jesus walked along the shores of Galilee and Peter and Andrew and James and John were the first disciples, first people he called. 
to follow him. They were the first ones mentioned by Mark. So they were the first ones to come and follow, and now they're the first in terms of saying, okay, we want, we want to hear this, absorb it, and believe it. Tell us more about it. Tell us about the signs, because that's, where, that's uh, what we want to know. So as we read on in this chapter, Jesus will paint a picture of future persecution and cataclysmic events along with his return in power and glory. So now for the next section of the chapter, I'm going to turn it back to Joanne. Sometimes when we're praying, we're thinking, is God going to give me an answer? But boy, did he give an answer on that day. He had a lot to say. So let's listen to Jesus' answer to their questions. Then Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. As for yourselves, beware. For they will hand you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them. And the good news must first be proclaimed to all nations. When they bring you to trial and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are going to say, but say whatever is given to you at that time, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death. And a father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now we know that the disciples were certain that this end of the age that Jesus was talking about was going to happen while at least some of them were still alive. For example, there was a rumor that, G- that John was going to live all the way until Jesus came back. And later on in his gospel, John tried to erase that rumor by saying, look, that's not what Jesus meant. But we know that the disciples and the early church thought that Jesus was going to come back right away in their lifetime. And actually, all these things that Jesus said was an accurate depiction of what was going on in the Roman Empire at that time. And these were the signs of the closing of the age that Jesus gave. First, he said there were going to be false messiahs. Now, the word messiah originally meant anointed king or divinely appointed king. So even Cyrus the Great was considered a messiah before Jesus. But the word had come to be known as liberator from oppression, which is kind of a different meaning. Judas of Galilee had formed a group called the Zealots in 6 AD. So Jesus was about eight or nine years old when this group was formed. And these zealots were sympathetic with the Pharisees, but they also believed in liberating Israel. And so basically, they were saying, God is the only ruler, he's the only God, give me liberty or give me death. You guys recognize that kind of language? Okay. Well, that was basically their motto, and they were an example of false messiahs, because they were all very earth-minded. And the next thing Jesus said was that there was going to be mass deception, so don't you fall into that. The disciples had been watching Jesus correct delusions through his whole ministry, and so they were well acquainted with the delusions that the religious leaders labored under and even all the people who were trying to make Jesus king. Jesus said there were going to be wars, and there were wars in every quarter of the Roman 
Empire. Roman legions were constantly trying to put this, all these different insurrections down. So here's an example. Jesus said there was going to be international conflict. Okay, I'm going to give you a 20-year view, just 20 years, because I didn't have enough space to put everything. We're going to go from 38 to 58 A.D. Jesus died right around 33 A.D. So 35, or 38 to 58 A.D., there were riots in Alexandria, Egypt. There was insurrection in England, fierce brawling all over Judea because of the Romans. There was revolt all throughout Eastern Europe. There was war between Romania and Armenia. This is all in the ancient historians have recorded this. Border disputes in Germany. And this is when the Roman-Parthian War began. And that lasted like a good 20 years. So were there wars and rumors of wars? Oh, yeah, everywhere. International conflict everywhere. Jesus said there would be earthquakes. Okay. Well, how many of you have ever... uh, Joe, I know you've been to California. How, How many of you have ever been to California or lived there? Yeah, a couple of you. Okay, California's earthquake country. When we first came here, um, Dave kept telling me, you don't have to glue the cups to the, to the shelves. And I was like, okay, I can't sleep at night without them glued down. But the truth is, <laughs> they've never fallen off the shelves here. But in California, you live with earthquakes. Well, in that area, in the Dead Sea Basin, you lived with earthquakes. There was one, 31 BC, so during the reign of Herod the Great, and this would have been memorable, there was a 7.2 on the Richter scale earthquake right along uh, the Jericho Fault. It's kind of like the San Andreas Fault, if that gives you an idea. There were two earthquakes recorded in 33 AD. You guys know when that happened? Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. But that's recorded. That really happened. Luke recorded another earthquake that happened while the uh, believers were praying together. And the earthquakes that happened, they've actually measured those earthquakes when Jesus died and rose again. About six on the Richter scale. So pretty heavy. What about famine? Jesus said there would be famine. Okay. Josephus recorded widespread famine in Judea in 26 B.C., during Herod's reign again, about 20,000 people died of starvation during that time. Then other historians recorded famine all throughout the entire Roman Empire, mid-first century, so that same time frame, 30 to like, say, 70 AD. And at one point, there was only 15 days worth of food in Rome because the famines were so bad. And when the army surrounded Jerusalem in 70 AD, five months of of famine they recorded hundreds of thousands of people died of starvation. So to the disciples and the first century church, it looked like what Jesus was predicting was happening right before their very eyes. The birth pangs were happening. But Jesus said, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is still to come. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. Meantime, he had explained very carefully to the disciples what was going to happen to them. Betrayed to the councils, beaten in synagogues, bear testimony to governors and kings, broadcast the news to all the nations, brought to trial, be blessed with the Holy Spirit, brave family disintegration, and be hated by all. And so far, the disciples have been protected from all that. But after Pentecost, as soon as they started delivering the gospel to the nations, real opposition was going to start. In fact, in the women's Bible study, that's what we've been studying in Acts, is exactly that. Jesus had four important instructions for his disciples. Don't be led astray. So they had their scriptures, and they had Jesus teaching. Jesus was saying, you have the truth. Don't get swayed 
from the truth. Proclaim the gospel. Okay, the disciples were just ordinary guys, but they had something extraordinary sitting right in their laps. It was the gospel. And Jesus was saying, you've got to spread that good news of salvation. Speak in the spirit. Now, they probably didn't know exactly what Jesus meant by that, but pretty soon they were going to have something extraordinary within them. God's life, God's spirit within them. And he was going to enable them to stand strong, to speak before governors and kings. In fact, if you read in in the early chapters of Acts, the Sanhedrin goes, Peter, he's just a fisherman. How could he be so learned? The Holy Spirit. The last one was endure to the end. Jesus said, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. It sounds kind of like to us, well, we better do that on our own. We better hang in there. Otherwise, oopsie, we won't be saved. The way that is in the Greek It it explains that when you look around and the last one's standing, those are going to be my people. They're the ones. Everyone else is going to fall down. And a distinguishing mark of people of faith is that we do endure. And every single one of you have been through that. And you look back and you think, how did I make it through that crisis or that horror or that tragedy? It was the Holy Spirit. He made it possible for you to endure. And in fact, the disciples had gotten a little taste of this supernatural power because remember, they'd been casting out demons. They'd been healing the sick. And Jesus was saying, okay, you're going to have the spirit. Don't worry. And in fact, that's what we see in Acts, countless signs and miracles as the gospel was spread. And that was authenticating the message they were delivering. Now, they didn't know how long this was going to take. And they knew a lot of things were going to happen, including their own suffering. And then later in life, Peter explained, look, the reason why this is taking so long is that God is patient. He doesn't want anyone to die. That's why this is taking so long. But there's more. There is so much more in this passage, right, Steve? Yes, indeed. Uh, We're going to read. Jesus is going to continue to speak here. Um, We've you've been on the ride where you needed that seatbelt fastened or you might go flinging out of the car. Well, now this part of the chapter there's a height requirement. So really grab on tight. Here we go, Mark 13, 14 to 27. Jesus is continuing to speak. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not to be, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of the house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter, for in those days there will be tribulation, such as not been seen since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then, if someone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there. Do not believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars in heavens will fall, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. 
And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Well, what did the disciples hear as Jesus said those things? As typical of Jesus, he had some mind-stretching things to say. There's always a little bit of surprise on the part of the disciples as Jesus talked. It's always readjusting the thinking. Uh, but, the, um, but here and there in this section, they caught the sound of something familiar. They heard the echoes of Old Testament prophets speaking about the end times. So we have the abomination that causes desolation. A really strange phrase, sounds ominous. This designation is used four times in the book of Daniel and nowhere else in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, only in um, this specific phrase, only in uh, this this speech of Jesus's. Uh, abomination, pretty straightforward word. Desolation has, a, has meanings that sort of fit two different kinds of things. Uh, one is to devastate, to ravage, to make desolated. Uh, and the other is to appall or to stun or to show, uh, to show horror. And uh, it's only used those four times in Daniel, used here. So scholars can't tell you for sure. But what if it's kind of a combination of those things? Something, the abomination that's so horrid, so uh, horror-filled, and, and that just destroys. The way Daniel uses it, it's pretty clear in, in his context that it refers to some evil person who ends temple sacrifices and then sets up at the temple this thing called the abomination of desolation. We know in rabbinic literature, there's a very strong consensus that in A.D., uh, B.C., uh, uh, 168, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, a Roman, marched on uh, Israel and, uh, and took it over, uh, that he fulfilled this prophecy of Daniel's. You see, when he got to the temple, he erected a statue of Zeus, and then he, he had a pig sacrificed on the altar. Well, what that combination makes sense as an abomination that would cause horror by destroying the holiness, the apartness of God's temple, what that stood for as the heart of the nation Israel. So, while seeming to fit some of Daniel's prophecy, the fact that that occurred almost 200 years before Christ is telling his disciples, when you see the abomination of desolation, do this or that, uh, that means that there is another fulfillment of that prophecy that's to come. Jesus is pointing the disciples to the future. The second sign. A deadly tribulation. What Jesus describes is the worst kind of problems and adversities that can be imagined. It will be the world record holocaust. Tribulation and misery greater than there has been seen before since creation and will ever be seen. 
It's more intense than ever. It's going to be so bad it would result in the annihilation of all life. So, think of every apocalyptic movie you've seen. Deep Impact, The Day After Tomorrow, Twelve Monkeys, I Am Legend, Shaun of the Dead, (laughs) Extinction, 2012, and even throw in Sharknado. Roll them all into one indescribable. That's what this period of time is like. God cuts it short. He stops it early or everyone dies. This might have brought to mind for the disciples Daniel 12. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never since there was a nation even to that time. Jesus told his disciples to look for a time so terrible it has never been seen before and so deadly it will threaten to wipe out all life on the planet. Quite a sign. We've talked about the abomination of desolation, talked about in the Old Testament prophets, the great tribulation. The third sign is false messiahs. Now, there, there are warnings in the Old Testament and New Testament about not following false prophets. That's not new. Over the years, there have been many false Christs and false prophets, historically and then even in our day. And these folks claim to be from God, but are certainly not. This passage suggests that the imposters the disciples need to be looking out for are going to have signs and wonders so amazing that even they, even you and I, would be tempted to follow them. That's the suggestion here in Jesus' words. So amazing. All right, so the fun, we've got to move fast on these. It's a big chapter, a lot more to come. And so let's look at the final sign prior to the Son of Man's return. We've looked at the abomination of desolation, a deadly tribulation, false messiahs, and how we've, the disciples no doubt connected up with end-time prophecy from the Old Testament. Uh, What we have here is uh, Jesus is describes as signs in the sky. The sun and the moon darkened. The stars falling will be dramatic, frightening, and disorienting. It's a very clear connection between this description and what both Isaiah and Joel wrote. Isaiah talks about the stars falling like dried figs from a tree. This fruit that has dried up and it just can't hold on any longer and it's just falling. Uh, A a real image of decay. Uh, In Joel, they would have been well aware of Joel's prophecy. It's kind of the classic end time, one of the classic end time prophecies in the Old Testament. They certainly would have been aware of it. In Joel chapter 2, The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Fourth sign, the disciples would 
again, would associate this with end-time prophecy, together with all the things Jesus was talking about. Jesus, the signs Jesus spoke to disciples in this section do have this connection with end-time prophecies. So for the disciples, everything that Jesus said was future to them. They didn't have any reason to, and they didn't have any ability to look at these and say, well, these are probably going to happen in the near future, but this other stuff's probably way out there. They, would, they just heard all of this and thought, oh my goodness, all this is going to happen, and we're already seeing the birth pangs. Uh, well, Joanne's going to discuss the final words of Jesus in this chapter to disciples. So, Jesus didn't leave them just with that, like, all right, the Holy Spirit will take care of you, and good luck, boys, because I'm punching out. <laughs> so, <laughs> let's, see what, let's see some practical application that Jesus gave. He said, uh, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Beware, keep alert. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his slaves in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. Therefore, keep awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, or at midnight, or at cockcrow, or at dawn. Or else he may find you asleep when he comes suddenly. And what I say to you, I say to all, keep awake. So the first image that Jesus used was a very common imagery. Even the children knew that when the fig tree was about to bud, it meant summer was going to happen. There was no question. It was like the things you look for. It's kind of like us, as soon as we see some of the the leaves on our trees turn orange, we know fall is right behind the way. And that's what Jesus was using, that very well-known metaphor. And his predictions, he was saying, were going to come true in this generation. And we know that they did, some of them. In fact, the disciples, what they were hearing was Jesus saying, you need to be intentional and mindful about how you respond to current events. It's very important. And because the early church did take Jesus seriously, and because the disciples took Jesus seriously, and even more so, literally, they actually escaped the terrible Holocaust of 70 AD because the Christians saw the Romans beginning to surround Jerusalem. They realized what was happening, and they escaped. They fled to the hills, just like Jesus said they should. In the meantime, Jesus was saying, you have to make every day count. You need to actively anticipate and expect Jesus' return. This is what he's saying to them. And Jesus' metaphor that he gave them, it had kind of a dual sense. It had the sense of time. It's going to take some time. You know, the master's gone on a long journey for who knows how long. But also imminence, because the master could return at any time, especially after some time has passed. So the truth that Jesus was saying is, uh, Jesus is coming back. In Jesus' metaphor, the doorkeeper was to keep watch Every day. And what he was doing basically was watching down the road. You know another person that we think of in Jesus' story who kept watching down the road. You you remember that story? Who was it? 
Well, yes, Zacchaeus was watching from a tree. There's another one who kept the father watching for his son. That kind of feeling Jesus was giving to this story, be like that, the watchman always watching for that caravan afar off because as soon as he sees the caravan, he's going to call to everyone and say, get ready. The master's on his way. And presumably everyone has been ready because this has been the very day they've been looking for. They made every day count while the master was away. Every day they had been eagerly anticipating the master's return. Each day, the doorkeeper had taken his post to watch for the master's arrival as the most important thing to watch for. And therefore, the master's servants already had everything ready. They already had everything in order. And everyone was at their post, fulfilling their mission in anticipation of this very day. And so the question for you and me today just as it was for the disciples in early church, was how well does that describe us? For the early church, it described them well, and they were literally saved from a horrible event.